ladies and gentlemen, there has been a murder, and you are a suspect. Oh, this is so fabulous. Ain't nothing like getting together with family and having a good meal. I wonder what's for dinner. This is delicious. It was at this moment he knew. This is rotten. Ah! What'd you say? I said eat. <laughs> Drink. Oh, sorry. Are we are we recording? We've been recording. Oh my gosh! How are you feeling, Sharif? I'm actually feeling excited. Really excited? Yeah, I'm really excited to try this mead. Oh, this cup of mead, man. I'm not. Just I don't want to drink any alcohol anymore. I just want to purge it all from my system. Oh man, you went real hard, didn't you? Those guys. I was dancing to Moana last night. <laughs> How far I'll go? How which, far I'll which song go? Is that? That's the one. I've been dreaming by the edge of the water long as I can remember. Oh man, that's never good. really knowing why. <laughs> Moana is one of the best Disney movies, seriously. So it is. I love Moana. So I can't much. blame you for dancing your ass off to that. Uh, you know, it brings a tear to my eye. Well, let's go ahead and <laughs> dig in, shall we? What are we doing? We're gonna eat these scallops. We got some scallops. Cold scallops. <laughs> we got some cold scallops. We got some cold mead. Cold mead and cold and scallops. And some good conversation. Yeah, well, therefore, we have our subject tonight is about Lavinia Fisher. Do you know who Lavinia Fisher is? Lavinia Fisher is the first serial killer. He's looking into female. my eyes, people, because he doesn't have the script. First female serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, to, to many, she is known as the first serial killer, um, first female serial killer, sorry, in the United States. We cannot exclude women from these serial killers, okay? We have to make sure every sex, gender, orientation, whatever it is, is treated equally in the shit kingdom of serial killers. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll no. keep going. <laughs> it's episode two, EDM episode two. We're on number two in our... South Carolina, strange and sinister. That already sounded good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Series. Can we say it in unison? Can we, yes, ready? One, two. South, South Carolina, Carolina, strange and sinister. sinister. <laughs> oh, look at us. Hey, man. We are totally in sync and we're docked. Okay, we're not docked. I don't know what that means, but... You know, you know what, what that means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're in the hood. Yeah, so Lavinia Fisher and her husband, John Fisher, many regard Lavinia as one of the first female serial killers in the United States. This murderous duo lived approximately six miles right outside of Charleston in the early 1800s. And just to have the Charleston atmosphere, we have cooked some scallops and we're going back to the 1800s and drinking something very familiar of the time called mead. Now, what is mead, Shreve? Mead is the drink of the gods. Ah, it is referred to also as liquid gold, mm-hmm. and it is basically wine fermented from honey. From honey, which is really cool. So, mm-hmm. Savannah Bee Company mm-hmm. is actually where I purchased this mead in North Myrtle Beach. Um, I grabbed this, which is like a traditional mead, like the thing you read about in all the 
old uh, books, all the old literature, yes. the myths and and the right. Greek mythology. This is the, the, the drink of the gods. This is the drink of the gods. Wow. And, and I also got a sparkling mead. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, I already tried that. Oh. And it was divine. You got in the same It was like a champagne with a like a honey finish, maybe. Oh. So this here, I'm going to read the back of it. Mm-hmm. It describes the world's oldest alcoholic beverage brought to a high art and offered by Savannah Bee Company. A balanced, clean finish, sweetness that will satisfy a variety of palates. Mm. So let's go ahead and dig in, man. Let's try oh, this. Man. That's really good. It's very light, sweet. It reminds me of like a white wine with like honey. Yeah. <laughs> this is what it tastes like, but it's really, it's sweet. It's good. I do appreciate it. I like the sparkling one much better, but I would definitely go back and get some more of that sparkling one. This is a dessert beverage. It's not something you would drink a lot of. So I've, I got all my Charleston Bob CD. Charleston Vibes. Thanks, man. They're uh, You're setting the surrounding tone us. for our Charleston female serial killer who is kind of making South Carolina famous. We're not famous for a lot. Mm-hmm. So for us to get the first female serial female killer, serial killer yeah. kind of proud. Absolutely. Should or at least proud? that's that's what they say. But we're going to yeah. dig into this story a lot. As far as the legend goes, both Lavinia and her husband, John Fisher, are responsible for killing as many as 30 people. And to this day, the ghost of Lavinia Fisher haunts several locations in the Charleston area. Oh, man. Yeah, this will be good. Yeah. Have you ever done a ghost tour in Charleston? Oh, yeah. They're big in Charleston. I have some stories because I ended up doing a story one time for work in the same city jail, the old Charleston city jail, right? which is probably one of the most haunted places in North America. Oh, but right. it's, the I'm, same I'm exact, it's the same exact jail that she actually was held in before her execution. So this really hits close to home for mm-hmm. our very own Charles. Oh, yeah. Charles Charleston. It's called the... Uh, the Holy City. The Holy City. Mm-hmm. It's probably got a couple of nicknames, but I remember Holy City is one of them. Yeah. Now let's go ahead and acknowledge our sources for tonight's story. Our main source is going to be the book Six Miles to Charleston, The True Story of John and Lavinia Fisher by Bruce Orr. It's a pretty short read, but it packs a ton of research, and it has all these scanned documents from the early 19th century, which I really love to like look at. I can't read them. You can't decipher that stuff, but mm-hmm. you have to actually have a... Um, it's like a paleontologist for literature. So they are capable of like deciphering and reading old ancient texts. Oh, that's pretty yeah. cool. Now, Orr makes the argument, backed by convincing evidence, that the Fishers were less of a killer couple, but rather victims of an early American colonial justice system. And that is possibly why Lavinia Spirit stays behind to haunt the holy city itself. I like how you set that up, man. Yeah, I thought about wearing a wedding dress tonight while we were doing this because Lavinia is famous for her spirit still wearing the wedding dress and haunting the Charleston area. So that's and cool. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. The cosplay of Lavinia Fisher just would be a little bit over the top. Right. I just I, I decided not. to settle on just wearing a thong instead. <laughs> um, but let's dive into this legend of Lavinia and John Fisher a little bit. Now, there are several varying accounts, but the most accepted story is that that John and Lavinia ran the Six Mile House, which is a boarding house on the outskirts of Charleston in the early 1800s. What they would do is rob, murder, and dismember guests who stayed in the inn coming to or from the city. Most versions of the tale would say that Lavinia played the part of the hospitable seductress that would serve visitors tea mixed with oleander. Sedated, 
John Fisher would rob them, kill them, and then dispose of the bodies in the cellar of the Six Mile House. Other stories say that the house had trapdoors built into the floor, and the Fishers would plunge sleeping victims into the cellar where spikes came up from the ground okay, impaling them. Stop it. Yeah, I this know what is, you're going to say. This is Sweeney Todd. Yeah, it is. This is Sweeney Todd, man. And it's funny because like, I and wonder by the how way, that was inspired by what happened. Because they have, I believe, Sweeney Todd, the story came from what was known as a penny dreadful. Uh-huh. And those were like these short novels that were very violent for the time that yeah. they would sell on the streets of London. Okay. And... I believe this story has a lot of the same characteristics of what a Penny Dreadful would have. Okay. As far as the legend in the story goes, All which right. is interesting. Sweeney Todd is one of my favorite musicals, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the chick that plays the female interest. What's her name? Helena Bottom Carter. Mm -hmm. um, the chick that was uh, in Fight Club. I'm just saying she would make a good Lavinia Fisher if they ever oh, really did perfect. this story right. I don't even think Lavinia Fisher... I. <laughs> They can bring this For some story reason, back I always life. kind of thought of her as a blonde, but I don't think it ever goes into detail that she's a blonde lady. So that actually, that would be the perfect person to that play Lavinia Fisher. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, so regardless of what story you pick or go with, they all end with one of their potential victims managing to escape the Six Mile House. And he ends up fleeing back to Charleston and alerting the authorities. The very next morning, the sheriff and some deputies ride out to the inn, and while searching the property, they opened the cellar door and made the gruesome discovery of the Six Mile House. As the story goes, the Fishers were arrested, taken to the old city jail, and later tried and convicted. They were sentenced to be executed and hung at the gallows until dead. Lavinia, thinking her beauty and charm would end up earning her a pardon, was convinced she would never hang. Try as she might, her pardon never came. On the faithful day of her execution, she wore a wedding gown to invoke sympathy from the crowd, and when she climbed the scaffold after the noose was tied around her neck, a priest attempted to lead her in repentance of her sins, but she stopped and said, Cease! I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them, but if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Damn. It's pretty metal. Pretty metal. Wow. So then she leaps off from the scaffold towards the crowd and breaks her neck. The lifeless bride swayed back and forth in the Charleston streets until she was taken down and buried at Unitarian Church on Archdale Street. Wow. It said only hours after the execution, inmates at the old Charleston City Jail witnessed an apparition of a woman dressed in a long white dress floating through the jail walls. The troubled spirit still haunts the old city jail to this day and the Unitarian Church Cemetery where she's buried. Wow, that's really creepy. And you were in that same jail. Yeah, that yeah I visited saying. the jail. Yeah. And the entire time I was really disrespectful. I think I treated it like it was a joke because I like went with some of my colleagues from work and, you know, I would do stuff like go into one of the cells and take off my shoes and bang on the wall just to scare them in the other rooms and <laughs> pretend like I was getting pushed and stuff like that. And the worst part about that was eventually I had to go back <laughs> and I was like, they're going to get me this time. I know they will. But um, no, yeah. nothing really ever happened. But I did see, you know, there's so many explanations for this. I'm not one to like really believe in this stuff, even though I think it's fascinating. We did see some footprints in a stairwell that was supposed to have been shut off from like visitors 
Mm-hmm. That being said, it could have been anybody. I don't know. That sounds like a strange <laughs> encounter of the fourth kind to me. Yeah. I don't know what uh, shoes that Lavinia Fisher had. Uh-huh. But these were these were definitely some some guys' shoes. So, but apparently that she's not the only spirit that haunts there. But it was featured on one of those Ghost Hunter episodes that like Discovery Channel does or okay. something like that. Yeah. That was that was pretty crazy. But anyway, now that we've gone into the legend, let's get into some of the facts and details about this story, okay? This is the truth true. All right. First, let's set the scene. The year is 1819. Charleston at this time is in a bit of a downslope. The entire country was actually experiencing its first economic crisis following the War of 1812, which basically caused the financial system to collapse. Exports from Charleston were dwindling. Anything leaving the harbor at the time was subject to rampant piracy. And on top of that, they were in the midst of an epidemic. Yellow fever was so prevalent on these merchant ships that the governor at the time, John Geeds, issued a quarantine proclamation against vessels arriving at Charleston. So I'm guessing like, you know, these sailors that would come into Charleston had to be quarantined mm. um, whenever they came in. So they knew about social distancing even yeah. back in the 18 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundreds. Okay. Yeah. We, we're ha- we have a connection with some of this, don't we? Don't we? Now, because many farmers and traders opted to go buy wagons to sell their goods, this set up rest stops and taverns known as mile houses along the road. Like you would have like a six mile house you'd have a five mile house that's what i was hoping you would get into why they named it six mile house the inn that they ran sweeney todd and his Mm -hmm. wife um if they just would make meat pies out of people they would have (laughs) had a great business model you know so the trade shifted to these wagoners and so they started basically putting up these rest stops miles outside of charleston and they would name name them by how many miles outside of the city they were cool yeah Yeah. i don't know if it was like eminem reference eight mile uh, (laughs) Columbia, South Carolina, born and raised. I don't know nothing about that 303, bruh. (laughs) Anyway, uh, these mile houses became a hotbed for criminal activity during these trying times. Wagons and stagecoaches were easy targets coming to and from the city for highway robbers, who sometimes worked with proprietors along these mile houses, kind of like they had an inn at the inn. You are on a roll with these puns today. Thank you. Keep them coming, man. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't long before the reputation of these mile houses reached the townsfolk, and that's where our story begins. On February 16, 1819, a mob of angry citizens set out from Charleston to take matters into their own hands. Well armed, they rode towards the Five Mile House on the outskirts of the town. They found a small group of people at the inn and ordered them to vacate. When the group objected, there was a small skirmish and the building was set on fire. The occupants fled and the mob reorganized to go to the next inn, the Six Mile Wayfarer House. This time, the mob arrived and there was no one to be found. The party appointed one man, David Ross, to watch over the property if anyone should return. Can you double back? Why are these mobs angry again? They're angry because these places were a hotbed for criminal activity. So basically one day the townsfolk of Charleston had enough of what was going on at these mile houses. So they decided to do something and take matters into their own hands. There's not an actual point in time as far as the story goes of what was the deciding factor. I imagine it had something to do with someone getting robbed at the five and six mile houses. It just is funny because in our series, South South Carolina, Carolina, strange and sinister. It seems to be a recurring theme, the angry mob. Mm-hmm. It's like in Frontier Charleston, Justice, man. South Carolina, 1800s. That's how they did things back in the listen, day. Listen, we don't need an excuse. 
So Ross at this time is still watching over the property. And after the mob had returned back to Charleston, the occupants that fled the six mile house, cause you know, they got there, nobody was there. I guess they were watching them, you know, from afar in the woods or something and saw that everybody left. So they go back to the six mile house and see David Ross there standing guard and they attack Ross, but he managed to escape into the woods and make his way back to town. Okay. In his sworn affidavit given to the authorities February 20th, 1819, Ross describes what happened. David Ross being duly sworn deposes that yesterday on the hour of nine, William Hayward came to Six Mile House, of which he was in possession, accompanied by another person whose name is unknown by him, that the said Hayward cursed him, collared him violently, and pushed him out of doors. The deponent then again re-entered the house and asked to take away the few articles that belonged to him. Hayward put his hands into his bosom and said, you damned infernal rascal, if you lay your hand on anything, I will blow your brains out. By this time, Fisher and his wife, Lavinia Fisher, came up with two other men whose names are unknown to him. That Lavinia Fisher laid violent hands upon him, choked and boxed his head through a pane of window glass. Whilst I was endeavoring to get away from them, Hayward and Fisher beat him unmercifully with loaded whips aided and assisted by the other two men whose names are unknown to him. There was also another woman who aided and assisted whilst they were beating him. The opponent leaped out of the piazza and crossed the road through the woods. Then he got to the four mile house, but just as he entered through the woods, they fired at him. He got at least into the main road and on his way out of town, near Freight House Bridge, he saw the whole party coming to town. Fisher exclaimed several times, you damn infernal rascal, if I ever catch you, I will give you a hundred lashes. Ah, man, that's nice. Well, uh, just in case you didn't understand that, um, basically David Ross, I wonder if he's related to Bob Ross. <laughs> We've had Bob Ross into our discussions many times today. Anyway. They came across David Ross holding it down at the Six Mile House, and they beat the crap out of him. And Lavinia Fisher was part of it. I mean, according to this, she, like, collared him violently and pushed him out of doors. <laughs> Whatever collared means, yes. Choked and boxed his head through a pane of window glass. Dang, man. You know, she wasn't playing no games. Man, Bellatrix Lestrange. All you had to do was make a meat pie. And everybody would have been happy. <laughs> you would have been able to feed the angry mob if only they had seen the movie. Now, while David Ross was making his way back to Charleston after getting beat up by Lavinia and the Six Mile Gang, a trader by the name of John Peoples was leaving town. Only two hours after the attack on Ross, John Peoples arrived at the Six Mile House where he was also beaten and robbed by the inhabitants. He makes his way back to Charleston and gives a sworn statement. So we got David Ross's statement. Yep. Now we're going to get John Peoples' statement. Yep. John Peoples being duly sworn deposes that on yesterday forenoon. Oh, forenoon. Oh, I like that. Forenoon, the 19th into about 11 o'clock, as he was returning home from town to his residence in the country, he stopped near the forks of the road about six miles from town to water his horse. That whilst his horse were watering, a man came out of the six-mile house and told a boy who was with him that he must give him his bucket, as he wanted to water his horse. The boy refused to give him his bucket, saying he wanted it himself. He swore he would have it, and immediately nine or ten persons, among them a tall, stout woman, came out of the same house to the place where he was armed with clubs, guns, and pistols, and immediately made a violent assault on him some of them beating him with sticks and with their guns. And several times they flashed their pistols at him. That the woman appeared to be the most active in beating him, cutting him over the head and eyes with a stick. That after a while they left him and re-entered the same house. And the opponent proceeded about 200 yards on the road when two of the same men came up to him on horseback and stopped his wagon and said to him that they would kill him. Both of them presenting pistols to him and snapped them at him and demanded of him his money. Then they searched his pocket and took out his pocketbook, which contained his money amounting to between 35 and $40. And they rode back towards the house from which they came, the Six Mile House. 
Now, an interesting thing to note about this affidavit is a list in different handwriting attached to the back with names of what is later to be known as the Six Mile Houseman Gang. But we'll get back to that. With the two victims giving their statements, the sheriff, Colonel Nathaniel Green Cleary, set out to the Six Mile House. The house was surrounded. The occupants were placed under arrest and loaded into a paddy wagon to go to the city jail. The sheriff conducted a search of the grounds. Now, the only thing that he found at that time was a dead cow. There was no trap doors, no poison tea, no cellar full of bodies. Hmm. Less than a week later, however, there were reports of a freshly dug grave near the woods of the Six Mile House. The coroner, Jarvis H. Stevens, went to the location and to his surprise, found a freshly dug grave and it had not one, but two dead bodies in it. However, the first body was most likely an occupant of the Five Mile House and was wounded during that skirmish with the mob. The second body was believed to be an African-American female that had died years before any of this had ever happened. Okay. Now, John and Lavinia Fisher were only charged with assault and intent to murder David Ross. There was no murders whatsoever. Now, on May 27th, 1819, the case was heard for John and Lavinia Fisher. Okay. Unfortunately, the prosecutor for the state was one of the best orators of the time, Daniel Webster. You know, like Webster's Dictionary. Wow. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was someone who helped with the Confederacy, which is even... Whoa, wow. We just went like a 360. Um, <laughs> wow. So he went from being like a really great person to just being kind of awful. Thank you. But that's all you get in South Carolina when you get, dig it, into man. the history. Yeah, I'm just sorry. Buckle up because that's yeah. pretty much all there is. Now, uh, in the end, John and Lavinia Fisher were found guilty for the crimes against David Ross that would be intent to kill and were sent back to the jail to await their sentencing. So Lavinia and John are held in the goal, what they call the goal. They do share a cell, but it's not the most you know romantic place in the world. This place is like infested with disease. The conditions were horrendous. There's torture going on everywhere. Oh, wow. Like there's literally, there was a room dedicated to torture at the old city jail. They did this thing called the crane of pain. Crane at of this, pain. The crane of pain. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there's already the um, constitution out at this time. So there's no way that this isn't cruel and unusual punishment, but pff, like they cared anyway, obviously, right? I mean, crane of pain. It looks like it's a device where they tie your feet to the ground and have your arms on a pulley system that is attached to the roof or the ceiling and then they just pull down and it like stretches you Mm. is what it looks like it's a stretcher it's a stretcher torture they also did something called cropping which is basically just cutting a motherfucker's nose or ear off (laughs) (laughs) you <laughs> <laughs> got cropped that sounds it's like photoshop the, in you know the 1800s um <laughs> that sounds like um the flaying in game of thrones oh no flaying is so much worse that's like peeling your skin back yeah these I people just right. cut your ear they're just you know um extremities just that, crop just crop you we're just cropping you <laughs> <laughs> just crop that right on the magic wand eraser just crop that on right your out fucking of there. nose just, 
Get that um, nose <laughs> out. But yeah, needless to say, things weren't great for Lavinia and John. They were not feeling their surroundings. They ended up convincing the jailers to be moved to another less secure section of the jail that was used for housing debtors. I guess there's sections of the jail where people with less serious offenses are held. There they reunited with a member of the Six Mile Houseman Gang, Joseph Roberts. And on the night of September 13th, 1819, John Fisher and Joseph Roberts created a hole under one of the windows and lowered themselves down the side of the old city jail using tied blankets, just like out of a cartoon, man. <laughs> Are you man. serious? Uh, wow. Robert, the first to scale down the wall, was followed by John, but as John was lowering himself to the ground, the blankets tore and he fell 20 feet to the ground, leaving his beloved Lavinia trapped three stories high in a jail cell. There was nothing he could do without alerting the guards, so with no alternative, he escapes into the darkness with Joseph Roberts, where their escape was not to be noticed until the following day. But as it later turns out, escape may have not been the wisest idea. Mm. Did he get injured in the 20-foot fall? I think from what I heard about him hurting himself is like he definitely walked with a limp. No, he was bow-legged. But that was also a symptom of some disease they had back then. Mm -hmm. No, it was like scurvies or something. <laughs> Gosh, what was that old disease? Um, rickets. It was rickets. Yeah. Is that why they named it that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they That's put you in those walk. braces. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's messed up, dude. This is, rickets is nasty, man. You be walking like cray cray. But yeah, it could have been rickets. So we're not That's sure if it was the fall. Forrest or Gump had them rickets. Or, or for the rickets. But yeah, there was definitely a lot of that going on around back then. Mm -hmm. Now, just two days after the escape, Charleston Courier runs a brief article offering a $500 reward for what the current governor of South Carolina, John Geddes, for the capture of John Fisher. I think one of the most interesting things to note about this $500 reward from the governor of South Carolina, from the governor of South Carolina, is that Joseph Roberts, the guy he escaped with, there was no reward for him. There was no documentation of a reward for him, but did there they, was one for. Did they know that he's, he got I away? I mean, they were in the same gang together. They may not have known that he got away, though. Well, no, they find out, yeah, because less than a week later, a grocer by the name of William Bull was working late hours at his store on South Bay. He glanced outside and observed two men in the darkness paddling towards the shore in a small canoe. Mm -hmm. One entered the store as the other walked off into the darkness. The customer made a few purchases, but the grocer became suspicious of him. As the man left, Bull secretly followed him and observed him crawl under an overturned boat on the wharf. Bull had a colleague monitor the situation while he left and alerted the authorities. Now wait, before I go and call him, Mr. Bull, yep, a yep. snitch. Oh yeah, no, he's snitching. No, before I really even drop that name yeah. on him, let's find out how much was five hundred dollars worth. Oh shoot, back 18, in those 19. days. Can you let's see? Eighteen nineteen inflation. Five hundred dollars would have been roughly about ten grand, almost eleven grand. I'm telling. Yeah, I'm telling too. I'm telling. I don't know this yep. dude. Yep. I don't know this dude. I just saw it him in the paper. It was him. You know, he's like a murderer. Well, not really, but still. So Fisher and Roberts were <laughs> were found hiding underneath the overturned boat and were arrested and sent back to the jail. Now you can say a lot of things about John Fisher, but one thing is certain: 
he was completely devoted to Lavinia. But was he though? Yes, he when was. When he didn't let her go first? I mean, come on. And he saw that it was safe. His boy Robert made it down just fine. But he also didn't leave Charleston. He stayed in the area trying to figure out ways to break her out. Otherwise, why would he stay? Like, why wouldn't he just leave Charleston? You can literally get away with anything as long as you leave. I, I mean, I, I appreciate his devotion, but you get one miracle in life. <laughs> one miracle. You don't get two, but I guess, you know, I don't know what to say about Robert. <laughs> what were they doing? <laughs> if Robert was smart, he should have got way the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah, definitely. But they were like, I don't know, man. Maybe gangs were tight back then. You know, gangs are tight today, too, I'm sure. I would have had your back. Thanks. I would have yeah. had yours, too. Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sharif. I just can't do this. All right. Now that Fisher is back in jail, he is placed under heavy guard until his sentencing hearing on January 17th, 1820. The next day, the Charleston Courier reports that John and Lavinia were both convicted of highway robbery of John Peoples and received their sentence. They were condemned to be hung February 4th, 1820. Now, let's pause here for a second. The Fishers had previously been arrested and tried for the assault on Ross, if you remember in the first part of the story. Now they're being sentenced for a completely different crime, a highway robbery of John Peoples, a different crime and victim altogether. Now, how did they get convicted of a crime against one man and then sentenced to die for the crime against another? No one knows. Their crime that they got arrested for never went to trial and they were never convicted of it, as far as records show. So there's two possibilities. Okay. So possibility number one, this was a highly publicized case. The people of Charleston, as you may remember, they were fed up with the events that would transpire at these mile houses. And one person who would benefit by appeasing the crowd was Sheriff Nathaniel Green Cleary. Okay. Um, in 1820 happened to be an election year. And what better way to clean up the town than to ensure this high profile case had the intended results. Highway robbery yielded a harsher sentence than assault. So they got arrested for the assault of George Ross, but they were sentenced for the highway robbery of John Peoples. So since the case yielded a harsher sentence, they kind of swept the George Ross thing underneath the rug. Possibility number two. John Fisher's uncle, George Fisher, had a daughter who happened to be married to a Ross. George Ross, you know, is the person that they were arrested for. So you're saying basically one of John right. Fisher's first cousins is married to a Ross. Right. John Fisher's uncle, George Fisher, had a daughter who happened to be married to a Ross. One could speculate it was George Ross, or at least kin to George Ross. So if Ross was the victim, he could claim a foothold in the land for compensation of the crimes by proxy, George Fisher would have some type of access to it. Okay. Right. So now there's like a personal interest now. That makes Yeah. So a here's lot the thing. George, George Fisher, that would have been you know, John Fisher's uncle would have gotten the land. Why wouldn't the powers that be want that to happen? Why would they not want Fishers to keep the land? As it turns out in 1820, it was also the year where the current U.S. president, James Monroe, was doing a tour of the South to find a place for the country's new naval base, something that would bring infrastructure and jobs to South Carolina. The SC governor, John Geddes, wanted this. It's known that he hosted the president in Charleston that very year with parties and fireworks and stuff. Like he went all out to try to get this naval base to come to South Carolina or to Charleston in general. If he saw the 
area around Six Mile House as an opportunity without anyone having a stake in the land, it could be the perfect place for this new naval base. Mm. So they take away the possibility that George Fisher would no somehow get plan. control of this land because his daughter was married to a Ross. It would still end up in a Fisher's hands. For that to be possible, John Peoples would have to be some type of fall guy who wouldn't stand in the way of the government. But it is odd that people showed up at the Six Mile House only two hours after the incident with George Ross, not knowing there had just been some stuff going down. So likely, if this is a possibility, he knew what was going down and he rushed into it all nilly-willy. Right. Plus, he would have to pass the burning five-mile house on the way there. Because remember, there was a skirmish at the five-mile house. So, like, he had to know what was happening. So why would you want to put yourself in that position? You may think that it could be a stretch. John Peoples could have been working with the government in some type of land-grabbing scheme for the new naval base. But this is interesting. The site where the Six Mile House once stood today now stands Charleston Naval Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) So that is, you know, a possibility. That's pretty compelling. I mean, I guess to sum up this story is we don't know why the charges changed. They're just theories. But all in all, there was no trapdoors. There was no bodies anywhere. Uh You could say that they were, in fact, victims of this weird colonial justice justice system that existed in 1890s Charleston, South Carolina, and they definitely had their rights violated as far as what documentation shows. Regardless of all this, it all came to an end February 18th, 1820. Here's the headline from the Charleston Courier. Execution. The awful sentence of law is this day to be carried into effect upon John Fisher and Lavinia, his wife, who were sentenced to death at the late sitting of the Constitutional Court for the crime of highway robbery. We understand that they are to meet their fate just without the lines on the Meeting Street Road between the hours of 12 and 4 o'clock. Charleston Courier, Friday, February 18th, 1820. Now, the Fishers were granted a small respite from the February 4th sentence to make their peace with God. Months leading to the execution, the Fishers became close with a Reverend Dr. Richard Furman, the founder of Furman University. Holy cow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, shout out to Furman University. Yeah. Go. Let's see. Let's, what's their mascot? Furman. Oh, they're, oh, that's kind of badass. They're fucking paladins. That's dude. pretty cool. Man. They got a freaking knight with like a jousting thing going on for their mascot. That's dope. So Furman kind of felt for the couple and he believed he was called to prepare their physical bodies for execution and their souls for the afterlife. Here's a letter John Fisher wrote to what people believe was Furman the very morning of his execution. Reverend and dear sir, the appointed day has arrived, the moment soon to come, which will finish my earthly career, and it behooves me for the last time to address you and the reverend gentleman associated in your pious care for your exertions in explaining the mystery of our holy religion and the merits of our dear redeemer, for pious sympathy and benevolent regards as concerns our immortal souls, except, sir, for yourself and them, the last benediction of the unfortunate. God, in his infinite mercy, reward you all. In a few moments, and the world to me shall have passed away. Before the throne of the eternal majesty of heaven I must stand. Shall then at this dreadful hour my convulsed, agitated lips still proclaim a falsehood? No, then by that awful majesty I swear I am innocent. May the Redeemer of the world plead for those who have sworn away my life. To the unfortunate, the voice of condolence is sweet. 
The language of commiseration is delightful. The feelings I have experienced in his society? A stranger, he rejected not our prayer unknown. He shut not out his ear to our supplication. He has alleviated our sorrows. May God bless him. He has wept with us. May angels rejoice with him at a throne of glory. Enclosed, sir, is a key that secrets my little all. Give it him and save from me as he deserted me not while living. I hope he will discharge my last request. Now my property is to be disposed of. He will find explaining a paper within my trunk, to which is attached a schedule of the whole. I only wish him to see it removed until to whom it is given shall call for it. The hour is come. Farewell, sir. Farewell. John Fisher. So, yeah, even to the very end, John Fisher is still holding on to saying he's innocent of all this. You know, it was a setup and it was setup. such a easy for all parties to be involved because it's like election year. They needed a scapegoat. Yep. That's it. It really sucks for him. It does, man. It really does. He, and just think of their story now. It's just like a ghost story and they were serial killers. You know what I mean? And none of that ever happened. So funny. That is funny. History writes itself to the less fortunate. <laughs> Especially in South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, shit. That's why it's called His Story. Oh. It's only written by the people yeah, that were there to... Yeah, but why can't it be her story, man? Because it's only written by the people that were left there to write it. Yeah. Wow, you're speaking in tongues now? Thank you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Shit. Maybe not. Now. All right. Was it the John Fisher story that moved you to speaking in tongues? I think tongues? it was just the way that you uh, profocated. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I'd you profocated it. <laughs> Exactly. Now, shortly after this letter was written, John and Lavinia donned loose white garments, which they had provided themselves at their own expense, and threw themselves into each other's arms in a last farewell before descending the city jail stairs, arm in arm, to a coach waiting outside the prison door. The procession moved slowly to the gallows on King Street. Naturally, a massive crowd was gathered there. Not only was it highly publicized, but women being hanged was somewhat unheard of at this time, and it drew a lot of interest. When the Fishers arrived, John was at first terrified of what was about to happen, but he finally nerved up and climbed up to the gibbet. A gibbet is like the, let's say, if you were going to do a play on a place where people get hanged, mm -hmm. it's like the stage floor. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> how wonderful. Yeah, it's like scaffolding, kind of. Anyway, he climbed up to the gibbet. Lavinia, on the other hand, was having none of it. She cussed and screamed and refused to go until the constables were forced to remove her from the carriage and drag her to the stand. John and the attending reverend pleaded with her to make her peace, but Lavinia remained defiant until the very end, saying, Cease! I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Yeah, she definitely said that. That is the one part of the legend that is most likely true. Wow. Like, there's no serial killers. There is no, no Sweeney, Todd. Sweeney Todd's going on. No meat pies. Um, but she was a bad bitch to the very end. I like it. Um, and there's uh, also no wedding dress. They just had on white garments. That's something interesting to know, too. But it's funny how people associated that with the wedding dress deal. So... Another part of the legend that doesn't make sense is the haunting at Unitarian Church 
So like, if you remember correctly, they apparently still have the spirits of Lavinia Fisher in a white wedding dress at the Old City Jail. And also it's been told that she also haunts the Unitarian Church, but they weren't buried there. So that doesn't really make any sense. They were buried pretty much where the MUSC campus is. So you have to ask yourself, if there's so much historical data on this subject, how did the story get so twisted? How did we get the cellar full of dead bodies, the Oleander Tea? It turns out a Scottish writer named Peter Nielsen visited Charleston in the 1820s and discovered the tale of John and Lavinia Fisher. Nielsen published Penny Dreadfuls, like I've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, they were these cheap, popular serial literature books in the UK that were sold during the 19th century. I wonder um, if we can uncover those. That would be cool for Yeah, if we could episode. get our hands on a Penny Dreadful, like an old one. Yeah. That'd be dope. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Now, I think when we talk about Becky Cotton, which has a lot of similarities to this story with Lavinia Fisher, Becky Cotton is a serial killer that was supposedly out of Edgefield, South Carolina. I believe in one of our sources, there is a Penny Dreffel in the book. Oh, cool. Look for but that. But the thing, main thing about these Penny Dreffels is they were just completely sensational, fictional pieces of work. They were very over-exaggerated of the actual events so they could just sell more copies. And they were just a penny. So why not, you know? Naturally, this also helps ghost tours in Charleston sell more tickets. So... <laughs> No I disrespect mean, to those touring companies. You got to do what you got to do. But it's an yeah. awesome story. It's, it's just, yeah, it I really mean, is. It, it, it is slightly exaggerated when you get to all the historical data there is. Pretty much none of it's true. One more interesting tidbit about Lavinia that's talked about in the book is her appearance. Yes, she was lovely and beautiful, but she differed from the fair-skinned ladies of the South. She was described as being Amazonian or termagant, which basically means a harsh-tempered, overbearing woman. Um, <laughs> dang, that's cold. But because she was described as being Amazonian, she was known to have a darker complexion. There's a lot of information about John's descendants and genealogy, but there is no information about Lavinia's. We don't know about her parents or where she came from. All we know is that she was 28 at the time of her death. Now, remember John's uncle, George Fisher, who could have inherited the Six Mile House. It turns out in 1810, George Fisher sold two enslaved Africans for the sum of $700 to a Dr. Joseph Glover. The bill of sale, which there are photocopies of in the book, was for two young girls, and their names were Sally and Lavinia. It's possible Lavinia was oh, a black girl. It's possible, yeah. Uh, Dr. Glover was a well-known doctor in the Charleston area, which puts a enslaved African named Lavinia with ties to the Fishers. So it's not completely out of the question that she could have had you know a little flavor hold up this story just got <laughs> this story just got a whole lot deeper yeah yeah definitely and definitely. it's already a good story but man that's that's kind of an unexpected turn her being a and that girl. all it all takes place around 10 years before the events of this story take place so which would have made it just easier even for them more to, likely yeah it's easy to believe that john fell in love with one of the enslaved girls of his uncles and followed her to charleston to rescue her Mm -hmm. And this could explain why they were treated so harshly by the local government. I mean, because when you kind of think about it, what's more likely that they were trying to get land, they were trying to get rid of the bad things that were happening at these six mile houses or mile houses in general, or they were just racist. They were <laughs> I probably, mean, they were racist. <laughs> she maybe have had fair enough skin to pass for a white woman. 
but there were a lot of people in town that probably knew that she wasn't and they were probably looking for an excuse easily could have happened yeah so one yeah. couple to go having the photocopy bill of sale that couple to go yeah just really with the enslaved african girl named lavinia is just too much of a coincidence almost you know you're right so it's crazy to think about it could just be a coincidence but you know now yeah. it went from sweeney todd to django unchanged right yeah definitely or more like you know something a lot I mean, worse so, <laughs> i, I, I mean django, that, django unchanged is bad but it's like he still got to kill them white people <laughs> and that is the end of the story wow that's that it was great that so was imagine awesome. that man yeah. it's, it's got a lot of twists and turns but um you won't get that on the ghost tour in you Charleston. don't you definitely don't they don't tell you the truth but i enjoyed i enjoyed the story a lot but yeah that great. was awesome and what's great is we get to wrap it up my wife she just stopped by and brought pie listen yeah. she got these apples and they are great for eating, but they're also great for baking. That's what she brought by is these uh, this apple pie she just made, a Gordon Ramsay recipe. It's still hot. It, oh, yeah. We got some ice cream to go with. I do ice so cream. declare. Yes. You know, eat, drink, murder. I said, baby, you know, we're doing this podcast. We hungry. You know, we, we got We had a drink. Just, I mean, we did that. Yeah. We got to eat, too. Yeah, definitely. We ate at the beginning of the episode, but we're going to eat at the end, too. <laughs> did we eat at the beginning? Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> but, yeah, Wait, we so. Had- <laughs> it's just great. It's really, I love this podcast. But you know the name of the apple? What's the apple? It's a Gina Gold. Gina Gold? Gina Gold? It's a Gina Gold. It's, it's a Gina Gold. Gina Gold. Gina Gold. It's like a bad Harry Potter porno. It really is. <laughs> Professor Gina Gold. Gold. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful night, Sharif. All right. That was awesome. Good night. Good night. Oh, that's a hot one. That's a spicy meatball.